Hi, everybody. I'm Santita Jackson. Welcome to this special edition of the Rainbow Push Coalition. And let's talk about it with Santita Jackson and friends. Conversation tonight, what are we talking about? COVID-19. We're going to have a candid COVID conversation because we need to. And we're going to have this conversation with some of the most trusted persons in the field of health. There are many rumors that are being bandied about, a lot of misinformation, um, a lot of hesitancy, a lot of mistrust, a lot of distrust. And we hope to do our part this evening to help dispel your fears, your hesitancies, and we want to empower you. We know that knowledge is power, and that is what we plan to give you tonight. How did we get here in the United States? In the United States, we're only four, four and a half percent of the world, and yet we're one quarter little more than one quarter of the world's COVID-19 cases. Let me give you, let me set the table for you. It's 107 million cases of COVID-19 all around the world. 27 million are in the United States. More than 400,000 persons have died. How did we get here and how can we navigate our way to healthfulness? Well, we've got a tremendous panel with us tonight who are going to help us to break it all down. And if you don't mind, I'm going to put the ladies first. We are so excited to have Dr. Shanina Knighton. Who's Dr. Shanina Knighton? She is a registered nurse who is who has a doctorate in her field. And she wants to talk to you tonight about how we can prevent infection and spread. We've got Dr. Deborah Furholden. You might have seen her earlier today on MSNBC. She made us so proud as she talked about health inequities. She's one of the world's leading epidemiologists. She's Associate, Associate Dean of Public Health at Michigan State University. And of course, you can catch her on my show every morning at 6.30 Central Standard Time, 7.30 Eastern Standard Time, giving you the latest and the greatest about COVID-19, giving you the truth, everybody. And so we're excited to have you tonight. And of course, Dr. Ivan Walks, former head of the DC Office of Public Health. So excited to have him. Watch what you have to say, everybody, because he's a trained psychiatrist. Uh -oh. We love him. We love him. And they've done a lot of great work. Um, he's done a lot of great work in this space of public health. And really, how do you deal with a city? How do you deal with a state? How do we deal with a nation? I think he's going to give us some great answers tonight. And then, of course, the man who's helping to lead it all for us, the head of the National Medical Association. This is the largest organization of Black physicians in the world. Dr. Leon McDougall, who's from The Ohio State University. We love it. We love it. We're so excited to have you all. And so, you know what? Let us begin. And let us start Dr. Knighton. You know, uh, nurses are the unsung heroes, if you will, in the medical profession. They're the ones when we're in the hospital, they sit with us for a long, long, long time. It's not that we don't love our doctors, but we do love our nurses. And we're very, very excited to have this young woman because she has a doctorate in the, in the space. And she wants to talk to us about the infection of COVID-19, how we spread it. Um, how we catch it, how we spread it. It seems to me, Dr. Knighton, a year in, I see a lot of people who uh, use their masks sparingly, and if you will, to come up with another word, erringly. They wear it on their chins, they come into a building, Dr. Walks and Dr. McDougall, and they pull it down, and, and then they see you because they know you, they 
they take their masks off in the car. It's like, oh my gosh, how is this spread? Is this airborne? What what are we looking at with the coronavirus and COVID-19, Dr. Knight? So for one, it's not something way anytime soon. And I'm sure um, our other panelists can allude to that. And unfortunately, there's this false sense of perception that as we continue to seek treatments, um, different vaccines, different solutions, that there's going to be this one size fits all. And so just as you alluded to, you know, going inside of a building, watching people use masks correctly and incorrectly, knowing that only three to six percent of the population cleans their hands correctly, you really do wonder, is it a matter of the government doing everything that they need to do? Is it a matter of people just not doing what they need to do? And so what I'm concerned about right now is, is now that we know what we should do, I'm not seeing enough campaigns or information about how to do it. So many people aren't aware of how to even wear a correct, how, how to wear a mask correctly. And so there's individuals, let's say they're wearing it beneath their chin. You have others that are deciding, you know what, I'm just going to have it beneath my nose. Yeah. And so we're still exposing areas and many are missing why we're wearing them to begin with. And the assumption is, is that because we know that people are either asymptomatic, meaning that they may show no symptoms, or individuals may think they have an alcohol and it can be something that's more severe. Um, we run into a situation of where they don't recognize that the assumption is that we are all sick and that we want to keep our germs to ourselves to, to prevent it from being spread to others. And so there's a lot of practices that I think are lack in regards to seeing individuals and how they're handling them. What practices are lacking? I have to tell you, I saw a young man just a couple of nights ago delivering food in my building. And as soon as he walked through the front door into the lobby, he took his mask off. I couldn't believe it. I was like, we're a year into this pandemic. And I don't know too many people who've not been touched by it. We know somebody, we know someone who knows someone from it um or you know somebody who knows somebody yes what is what is well what is missing what kind of campaign is needed and if you could walk us through how we wear a mask correctly wash our hands seems very simple but most of us do not know so when you mentioned so it's one of the things like we're told clean our hands right and many don't think that they don't think about it they don't think did 20 to 25. Am I washing my hands? Am I cleaning in between? Am I making sure that I'm getting between where the thumb meets the hands? Am I scrubbing my fingers? Am I getting the back part of my hand? So there's often some side of the hands that are missing. And even for those of us that are in healthcare, we know that it takes years and years of practice of doing this just to make sure that we're doing it correctly. Well, a lot of individuals are still not doing it correctly, and I'm still observing it, let's say, if I'm in a restroom. When you bring up mask wearing, so I, I caution people. So just like now, like how here it is, you know, my shirt is a little bit low, Dr. Fur Holden, like how it's not low, but exposed. So if I have a mask on correctly and it's supposed to cover my face from here, if I put it up under my chin, and this is after a conversation of us talking to each other directly, 
let's just say that your mask doesn't protect your droplets from coming out of your mask, but mine is doing its job. The minute I go to lower my mask and sit it down here beneath my chin, the next time that I raise it up, I've now taken the droplets that you've transferred to me and I now have given them access potentially to my nose and my mouth. And we know that COVID travels through the eyes, mouth and nose. And so I caution individuals that when they wear their mask down here, they're doing it against their safety. So it's not helping. The other piece of it is many don't recognize our cell phones are our third hand. They are with us all the time. We're constantly touching them. That same cell phone that you're touching with your hand, you then have now placed towards your mask or it's resting on your skin. And again, when we think about the proximity of our eyes, mouth, and nose to the germs that we're transferring to our face, that is something that we don't think of. So I think we really miss the mark of not just the socially distance, practice hand hygiene, um, as well as wear masks, but it's how do we implement these things in our day-to-day lives? So when I go to the grocery store, do I have my sanitizer? Do I want to correctly disinfect? Am I conscious of the buttons that I'm touching? Did I make sure that my tap and pay is ready? If it isn't, did I clean my hand? So there's a lot of things we don't think about. I walked into just thinking about a gentleman. Not only did he take his mask off, but he likely touched elevator buttons. So how many people will touch elevator buttons and not consciously think to clean their hands before they enter their space? So those are the practical tips that I think we are gonna get our minds around for our day-to-day practice. But so many of us crash course and in Absolutely. Dr. Walks, you have had to oversee a city, a whole city, really a city state, if you will, the District of Columbia as the former head of their public health system. When you hear Dr. Knighton, what do you think? I mean, what can a city, what should a state, what should our nation be doing to, to, I mean, a year in to let people know how this is spread, how this is transmitted and what they should be doing? I'll get to policy in a minute, but I have to get practical first and foremost, because you've overseen a whole public health care system. And as I've shared with you, I have a very dear friend who has recovered from COVID-19. And this person had the highest, the highest regard for how the healthcare system that you oversaw, how this person was handled. Uh, This person said, I was called like clockwork the same time every day. They wanted to know the meds that I was taking. They wanted to make sure, and they made sure that I got well. They made sure that I got to my appointments. Please start with the practical. What should a public health department be saying? Well, first of all, let me let me say I wish I could take credit for exactly what's happening now in the District of Columbia. It's good to hear that things are going well there and that the folks in charge, uh, Mayor Mayor Bowser and the uh, health department director are doing a great job. It's, it's, it's good to know that because you can't have a public health department dependent on the person who is there running it. There have to be structures and constructs in place and both can't just include the health department. One of the advantages of when I ran the health department in DC 
and what's going on there now is you have strong leadership at the mayoral level and, and in DC right now at the deputy mayor level. Uh, Wayne Turnage runs that part of the district government. And it's a wonderful thing to know that it goes across departments. Public health is not just a health department issue. The public schools have to be aware and integrated in what a health department is doing. All of the other departments have to be a part of it. So the first thing you, you do is you wanna make sure that your city is being run in an integrated fashion so that people, no matter what part of the city they touch, no matter what part of the state they touch, the message is consistent about what we want folks to do. Let me say this about public health. Uh, Santita. Public health is, we, a lot of healthcare is about getting people good information. Public health is about getting people to do something. We want you to behave in a certain way. That's typically a public health kind of a message. So everything that our good doctor just said about the mask and the hand washing, critical information to be consistently given across the entire jurisdiction. And then who is the message being given to and how do you identify the people it needs to get to? So linkages across barbershops, linkages across beauty shops, linkages across places where people are. This is why messages have to go out across the district. Um, so in terms of how do you get the message out and how do you make a difference? It has to be an integrated message, the same message, but given to the community it's given to, that it needs to get to. So for example, um, yesterday was Sunday, where was I? I was in church with the pastor giving a message about COVID to our congregation. And I think doctors and nurses and other healthcare people, public health people need to be out of our offices and in our community. I'm always happy to see Dr. McDougall out. I don't know when he's ever home because he's always someplace talking about how health gets into your home and into your habits, mm -hmm. into your habits. That's where public health needs to be. Hmm. What about, as you said, it seems to me, you know, a fully integrated system. I mean, and I, cause I have to tell you, I was in college and I was, I was really struck by the fact that the head of the DC public health department was very, very much a part of the community. And that, and that is something that I've seen in Washington that is quite admirable. I think that's why I brought that up because you all have been very consistent in Washington, D.C., which has been Chocolate City, which has been a city that up until Marion Barry really did, you had a black, you had a black middle, middle class, but you didn't have an entrepreneurial class. I mean, you, and you had poor, you had just, just, just unmoving poverty and that changed under him. And so I'm trying to find out what it is that that DC public health is doing right. What what is it? Because I'm telling you, I was struck by this person's experience, and I was so happy to hear that this is a public health department that is doing this that treated me as I felt valued. And I felt that I would get through it because I had one person who called me every day to make sure that I got my medicine. Well, you, it, it's really hard to wake up and decide to treat people as if they're valued when you don't value them ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the challenges with COVID-19 across our country is that we are seeing that the constructs that we need to have in place aren't in place everywhere. 
um, we wouldn't have to talk so much about how to fix our public health system if the public health system was already funded equitably and if it was equitably resourced across not just the funding but the attention that people get. I could go on and on, and I won't, about inequities in healthcare treatment for people of color, but we, we see that. Every time we touch, we touch the community, we touch disparity every single time. And so a place like DC where you have, it's no, it's no accident that we have an African-American woman, mayor in DC, an African-American woman heading the health department. We have an African-American brother as a deputy mayor, but there's this caring about people who look like us that happens in a place where people run it that look like us. To a large extent, part of that is saying, you know what? I recognize that people that look like me can be anywhere. You mentioned the entrepreneurial class. Mm -hmm. You can walk into DC. You don't know if the person you're looking at works in the building or owns the building. You just don't know. And so there's something about that diversity of accomplishment that helps to get us towards the, uh, Dr. Dr. Deborah's favorite word, I think, equity. I think we have to get to equity and we do it by respecting all of the individuals. I remember walking through DC one time and trying to be incognito, and there was a, 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 a young man sitting on the, on the sidewalk said, Dr. Walks, I see it's you under that hat. And it's, it's nice to be in the community where people know you. Why? Because when you come back to help them with information, they'll say, oh yeah, he was here yesterday when he didn't need me to do anything. Now he's back. I think he really understands a little bit about me and what my situation is. Because you know what? I can't worry about COVID-19 if I'm worried because I'm hungry. I can't mm -hmm. worry about COVID-19 if, if I'm about to get evicted this afternoon. And so we have to look in an integrated fashion at our communities and what those communities need all the time so that people can pay attention to that public health message. And you know, I'm building to you, Dr. McDougall, because as the head of the National Medical Association, you've been looking at COVID, the coronavirus and COVID-19, this pandemic, but you uh, and Reverend Jackson have come together with Dr. Deborah Furhold and you have been leading the Rainbow Push Public Health Task Force and the National Medical Association, the National Bar Association, you crossed disciplines and you came up with a public health manifesto in the midst of this pandemic. Why a public health manifesto and what's in it? Um, thank you, Santita. I'm going to answer that, but I want to pivot to the discussion that just happened. We were talking about DC and the higher percentage of Blacks living in that community. That being said, let's look at other states that may not have that amount of, of co collaboration, right? So what states have some of the highest, the entire state, the highest percentages of Black Americans? Let's talk about Mississippi. Let's talk about Georgia. Let's talk about Florida, Tennessee, Alabama, uh, and the like. And, and what do those southeastern states have in common? All of them have not adopted the Affordable Care Act. So in light of this pandemic, you have some of the states with the highest percentages, South Carolina, I left them out of there, some of the highest percentages of Black people 
and yet in the same have not expanded uh, uh, Medicaid, have not expanded opportunities to have uh, insurance networks that uh, entrepreneurs can buy into. So I think that's a focus that we need to have as a country and our legislature uh, class and folks uh, really pay attention to that. I, we, I wrote an op-ed with uh, Mayor, former Mayor Landrew concerning this issue that was published in The Hill. So that's a reference there. So uh, I'm glad we're speaking to this percentage of Black people in, in a state and how that lack of insurance and coverage can also be a factor in one's health and ability to obtain adequate health care. And so, uh, Reverend Jackson, what I'd like, so this was about March of 2020, and uh, we met with uh, Reverend Jackson, and Reverend Jackson said, we need a 10-point plan. <laughs> he said, we need a manifesto, Dr. Dubber, Holden, and I, and you uh, were involved with this process. And, uh, it eventually became a 12-point that was published uh, on April 15th of 2020, involving a collaboration with the Rainbow Push Coalition, the National Medical Association, and National Bar Association. And quiet as it's kept, those 12 points are still pertinent today and really speak to prevention and uh, the uh, physical distancing and using technology to communicate, especially in uh, places of worship and to really uh, prevent this spread. So uh, it's something that has led to uh, the development of the uh, National Medical Association's uh, Task Force on uh, COVID-19 vaccines and therapeutics and uh, going around and uh, speaking to the pharmaceutical companies about the safety and effectiveness and comparison of cohorts of black people compared to others. So uh, there's quite a bit going on in use uh, Santita. You know, when we, I, when we get on the other side, I really do want to focus on equity, but I would like in these, in these last couple of minutes before we go to break in about 90 seconds, if you can tell me why, Dr. McDougall, you chose to have a public health manifesto. It seems to me that you wanted to look at public health broadly, not just, it seems like the pandemic has been an opportunity for us to look at the, uh, the inequities in the system, not just inequality, but inequities. In about 90 seconds, why public so, health broadly and not COVID-19 specifically? Well, Reverend Jackson came up with that idea of manifesto. I said, oh, that's good, a manifesto. We're gonna drop a manifesto on the United <laughs> States of America. And uh, it also, includes the fact that we need to increase workforce diversity. We need more black nurses, we need more black pharmacists, we need more black doctors, we need more black Deborah Fur Holdings, we need public health officials and uh, uh, leaders uh, ha that have uh, spoken with us today. We also uh, reached over the horizon to the continent of Africa and speaking to the United States withdrawal from the World Health Organization and uh, needing to be 
engagement and to ensure that adequate resources were being supplied to the continent of Africa. So it is a broad speaking to the least of these, speaking to incarcerated persons, persons in nursing homes uh, and the like, and is as yes. a pertinent today. Uh, <laughs> Well, you know, when we get back on the other side of the break, we're going to look at inequities in the system. It seems that COVID-19 has helped us to see it's been a blessing in disguise. Now we have to deal with inequality and more than that, inequities. And how do we get there? How do we get from where we are to where we're supposed to be? Back in just a minute. Welcome back, everybody, to the special Rainbow Push. Shall I do that again, Deborah? Would you like? Okay, because I saw you. <laughs> okay, I can't hear you, but it's I'm feeling you. Oh. Right, I just wanted folks to know we're doing a live, so all of our <laughs> Facebook folks, y'all are participating in our live recording for Rainbow Push Sunday morning. I mean, Saturday, Saturday morning TV, Saturday morning. So it feels weird, right? Because we're still live for them. So. That's right. I'm sorry, my lady. You give no, me a no, second. No, I'm gonna no. get you right back. And this is just this is gonna be a 23 minute segment. And so, um, and if you all want to do cross talk and talk with each other, you're more than welcome to do that. You can pick up on each other's points. I'm here not to um, just to guide us in and out. Okay. So I shall begin now. And everyone on before we begin, everyone on Facebook. And on, on all the platforms, on YouTube, please like and share, like and share, and tell everybody about this conversation and share it throughout the week. And I do hope that you'll join me on the Santita Jackson Show on WCPT, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station. We're on from 6 to 8 a.m. Central Standard Time every morning. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, AM 950 Radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota every morning and then keep hope alive on the weekends and we can't wait to get dr mcdougall back on <laughs> on my show and on reverend jackson's keep hope alive show along with the whole panel dr walks and dr knight and, and dr deborah furholz and you all are such a splendid group welcome back to the second half of the rainbow push let's talk about it with santita jackson and friends edition of a candid conversation about covid we need to have one. We are here to dispel a lot of myths, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of misinformation. We want to talk about how we got into COVID, which is what we've done on the first half of this, and really how we can work our way through this and get to the other side to healthfulness and toward a more just and equitable uh, healthcare system. Of course, we have Dr. Leon McDougall, who is the president of the National Medical Association, a really our leader. He is the head of the largest and oldest Black group of physicians in the world. So excited to have him here. And of course, um, Dr. Deborah Furholden, Associate Dean of Public Health at Michigan State University. Indeed, she comes out of Johns Hopkins. And um, she's been looking at and working with the crisis of really inequities in health in New York, in Flint, Michigan, um, all around the country. And we are talking with Dr. Ivan Walks, the former head of the DC Office of Public Health, brilliant physician, and Dr. Shanina Knighton, holding it, holding it down for us. She is a nurse, but she has a doctorate in nursing. And she's been talking to us about, um, I bet you didn't know how to wash your hands properly. 
all the things that we really, really need to do. Because, you know, a lot of people seriously walk into the restroom and go like this and walk away. And that is not what you are supposed to do. I mean, all jokes aside, because we've been talking to you've been talking to us about preventing the spread, preventing uh, how we can little things that we're doing, uh, Dr. Knighton, that put us in danger, that put us in peril. And we need we can't say this enough because we're still not doing things correctly a year into this pandemic. Um, of course, Dr. Deborah Verholden, we have not heard from you, but we did see you this morning on MSNBC with Stephanie Rule, and you were brilliant. And you were talking about inequities. Um, of course, uh, Dr. Walks, you talked about just what we're gonna you chewed her up perfectly, and you, Dr. McDougall, chewed her up perfectly. She talked about Mississippi and what's not happening in Mississippi. Um, interestingly enough, um, got one of the most black states in the country, uh, the highest percentage of registered African-Americans of any state in the country, and unmovable, unshakable poverty. Have that too, but they also almost elected a black US Senator. So, I mean, there's a lot going on in Mississippi, but a lot of that we're seeing in Mississippi, we see um, in the Mississippis all over the United States, where black people live, where we see inequities. You said that this is a time for us to really tackle inequities in the healthcare system. Please explain. Yeah, so this is, you know, Dr. Walker made fun of me, but this is my thing. Um, I think what COVID did is, Dr. Walks is my guy. Uh, what COVID did is it just shined a light on what was already there. Inequity didn't emerge during the COVID pandemic. And the reason that I am on a push to mandate equity, and I want to clarify what I mean when I say mandate equity. We learned some valuable things during the beginning of the COVID crisis around how to mitigate disparities in COVID cases and in COVID deaths. We learned very early on that if people were going to have the ability to isolate or to self-quarantine if they had been exposed, that they would need access, barrier-free access to testing. And we saw tremendous uh, barriers for people having access to testing. Initial testing required that you have a primary care uh, a physician or a physician give you a script for a test. Well, if you came into the pandemic and you didn't have a physician, how were you gonna get that? And then a lot of the other testing that we created and put out in community to solve that barrier, we created drive-through testing. And very much like a fast food restaurant, you couldn't walk through the site. So if you didn't have a car, you couldn't access that. We created all of these problems that didn't address the real, what I call causes of the causes, which is that we simply live in a world where the playing field is not level where we have real barriers for people having everything they need to have optimal health and opportunities for optimal access to quality health care. And so my, my position is that we've got a lot of very hardworking, very smart people doing the work. I sit on the New York task force. I hear what they say. I sit on the Michigan task force. I hear what they say. I sit on my local task force and Time and time again, what I'm hearing are the tales of good, strong-willed people, community organizations, federally qualified health centers, nurses, community health workers, pushing a boulder uphill 
to make sure that we get this vaccine to the people who need it the most and that we do it fairly and equitably. What I say is missing is pull. They're pushing the boulder, but there's no policy in place. There's no mandate that says states, we used our taxpayers' dollars to pay for what's in that vial. You are now required, if you receive these vaccines, to demonstrate that you can get it, not just distribute it, but into people's arms fairly and equitably. That policy would be the pool. I say, if it matters, we make it a law. We decided at some point that seatbelts save lives. We all take that as a fact. And we have laws. You must wear your seatbelt. If we say equity matters, all I'm asking for is that we have laws that back that, that we have pull from our federal government and our state government to honor the tremendous amount of push that we're seeing out in community. And that is why I am committed that we mandate equity. You think that this crisis has uh, pulled into really should should not a national health plan, universal single payer, some kind of plan that guarantees every American equal access or everyone who's here, equal access to equal high quality health care. You think now that should be part of the discussion? I mean, we're in the pandemic. A lot of people, tens of millions of people have lost their jobs. Therefore, they have lost their health insurance. What do they do? I mean, how do you lose your health insurance in a pandemic? Where do you go? Should that be part of the discussion now? All of these things should be on the table. We keep talking about it and we keep reacting to it. But exactly what has happened, we spend a lot of time talking about vaccine hesitancy. And I do believe that vaccine hesitancy is a part of the problem, but it's only a part of the problem. We have bottlenecks. In my county, we have a wait list that is well over 30,000 people long, and it grows by 2,000 people a day. Nearly half the people on that list are African-American. So for all the people who don't follow the myth of they're resistant, they're hesitant, they don't know, they're misinformed, all of the people who said, I've done the work, I've looked, I trust, they, in my community, they, they call me our Dr. Fauci, Flint Dr. Fauci, right? And I always say, well, maybe Dr. Fauci is the national Dr. Deborah Furholden, but that? that's neither here nor there. How about that? <laughs> so all of these people have done the work and made a choice that they think will serve them and their family and their community. And now we've got a bottleneck and now the demand far exceeds the supply. And again, there's no pool for that that bottleneck be un unplugged and it be done in a way that honors people. Somebody who is legitimately in category 1A, a frontline healthcare worker who works in a pediatric office, you know, the bigger hospitals got the doses. Mm -hmm. Some of the smaller medical practices, if you're not in partnership with a larger hospital, a lot of those frontline healthcare workers who take care of our children, who help us when we need physical therapy, where we go and, and, and get other medical and specialty services, their number has come up. They're in category 1A, but they haven't had the opportunity to even get the vaccine yet. And now in my county, they're 30, 40,000 people back in the line. You know, So it's not a trivial issue. And these issues around equity and what we need to mandate, we learned that with the shelter in place order. 
so many people would have loved to have the kind of job where they could have switched over to Zoom or some other digital platform and did their job from at home. But unfortunately, a lot of our society don't have jobs that function that way. They don't have the kind of jobs that come with paid time off. So a shelter in place order falls on deaf ears if you don't have what you need to be able to do that and keep the lights on and feed your family. So it is time for conversations around a national health plan, around guaranteed income. These all need to be a part of the conversation for how do we level the playing field and make sure that everybody has what they need to be healthy. Again, that predated COVID. If we miss the opportunity now, it will live long after COVID. Well, you know, it seems to me that now we have an opportunity to do something big because we're about to reopen the public schools. Why is that big? Because it hits everybody. It hits multi-generations. We have a lot of people, particularly in the black and brown and poor white communities who live very densely. They don't live in apartments or homes by themselves. They live multi-generationally. Um, and, you know, I don't have children, but I have nieces, nephews and godchildren. And I know as soon as they started going to school, they'd come home and you'd, you'd get sick because they, they had their hands everywhere because that's what kids do. Right. So let me start with you, Dr. Knighton. Um, we've just had a big, we're not quite back to school in Chicago yet. They're going to vote on it tonight and tomorrow, but it looks like we're going to get there. But there's still a lot of concerns that teachers, the paraprofessionals, the janitors, um, the parents, the students that so many people have about catching coronavirus, about spreading it. What do you say to them? So I can tell you that one of the things for sure, um, my kids are actually back in school as of like the last past three weeks. How did you handle that? Help us, walk us through that. So it was optional. So they had the option to still go online. Um, but just with me understanding infection prevention, I had spoke with a lot of the school administrators about certain things that they would need to have in place. So when it came to routine hand hygiene, what I couldn't figure out is why is it that childcare centers have routine hand hygiene? So when your kid walks in, they're cleaning their hands, they're uh, responsible for helping them to brush their teeth throughout the day. But these are not practices that continue throughout the full school spectrum, mm -hmm. even though we know that they can continue to become sick. And so with the schools, they have protocols where they're wiping down rails every day. They're still allowing for social distancing. They've gotten creative with the games. And this is a public school. So they've gotten creative with games, you know, in regards to allowing them to still be able to socially distance. They still play basketball, but they do timeouts. So I've created and helped create protocols around settings that sure that they can now and they still have certain protocols so getting them clean their contaminated in that manner um i talk to them all the time about mass safety and i think it really comes down to a collaborative effort of me explaining to them that right now peer pressure can hurt us all 
I said, so you may be around someone that is not doing the right thing, but it is so important for you to do the right thing and to be a leader. And so the school has implemented a lot of positive reinforcement to help kids understand what correct mask wearing is, what good hand hygiene looks like, and the same methods that we have adopted in healthcare where when we see one of our colleagues not cleaning their hands and we have a way of telling them that, it's now time for us to take health care and what, we, what we've established infection prevention-wise and share it with the public, but not just telling them what to do, but again, how to do it. And as you know, Dr. Verholden mentioned, um, when she talks about equity, it goes across so many lines and even early on when we had CDC and WHO guidelines telling us do, I knew that there were get that message or what. And so the old tale, don't talk, don't talk down to your children, right? Or don't talk. This is literally having conversations so that droplets can fall on. And so it's those kind to talk about for schools, making sure that the teachers are not talking down to can fall. So it's all about how do we take practical things and help people to with us getting ready to go back. It is definitely a time for us to be nervous because outside of these settings feel comfortable in terms of coming back, but I'm still going there's a system. So to heat an air conditioning system up to date, there has insufficient materials. Okay. We're getting a little we're getting a little bit of interference. It's going in and out. You're saying so many things that are so important. Okay. About now. Is that perfect. better? That's great. That's perfect. Okay. So there's there are a lot of things that are in place right now that we do in healthcare that we have to start translating into different settings, including businesses as well as schools. And I think that is where the challenge lies, is helping people to undo years of experience of their behaviors and helping them to incorporate infection prevention into their current practices. Hmm. Dr. Walks, how does the public health system what do you do in this moment when we're about to reopen these schools? I mean, that's here. That's that that train has it has left the station. Whatever our reservations are, the schools are about to be reopened. And you have, I mean, all over the country, buildings that were built 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago, where these kids are going to school. And they have not changed. They have we heard uh, Dr. Deborah Verholden this morning. Someone we were told that they put a they were going to put a fan in the window, and, and we already heard last year tragically how um, so many of these kids were so uncared for in, in one particular school in Baltimore that there were icicles in the ceiling already. I mean, you know, we already don't treat our children with the love and care that they need. What can you? What should be done? to reopen the schools and what responsibilities um, does, does a city, does a state, does a nation have 
to these children and to the teachers and to everyone who works in that ecosystem, the bus drivers. So, so, so Santita, let me, let me put one of my other hats on. I spent five years on the uh, Maryland State Board of Education. And the only thing more diverse than public health across the country is education across the country. The Maryland State Board of Education ran like a corporate board, hired and fired the superintendent, all, um, all of the personnel issues came up to the state board. And so you have many boards of education that actually run the education system like a corporate board and are responsible for things like um, approving construction of school buildings, improvements in school buildings, all of that kind of thing. So this is universal in the government. Know where you are, understand how your Department of Public Health works, understand how your Department of Education works, understand who is responsible for what parts of it, because then you know where to apply the pressure. I'm a kid, Dr. Deborah, about that word, but that is our word. It is important for us to make sure that there's equity, but how do we get there? I, I can spend about a minute celebrating the problem and then I've got to go to next steps. I'm a next steps kind of guy. And what do we do next? What we do next is we understand that there are people who are accountable. One of my other favorite words, who are accountable for what we are living with, for the schools with the icicles and the water fountains that don't work and all of that. And those people respond to the people that vote. We have got to recognize that our way out of all of this in this United States of America is to vote. And we can't just show up when it's time to vote for the president. We have to show up when it's time to vote for the local judge, when it's time to vote for the local sheriff, when it's time to vote for the mayor and the council people, because at, in different communities, different people are running those different things that impact our health and impact our resources. So I think it's critical for us to realize that there is something we can do. We can find out, hey, who's running? I had a friend that ran for ANC in one of the communities in DC, just because she said, you know what? Nobody's doing anything. Guess what happened when election time came? Nobody else was running. I think she voted, her husband voted and she got the position. She now had influence in her community. That can't happen every day, but every day that you decide to know who's running and you decide to know who's in charge of what's bothering you is a day you have an opportunity to fix whatever is wrong in your community. So let's not get too far away from where the power is. The power is in the vote. Yeah, and the power does rest with us, Dr. McDougall. I mean, it's, that's why you have this public health manifesto. I mean, thank you, Dr. Walks, because the public really do have to get involved. I mean, I think that oftentimes we have been passive about our health. We go see the doctor, particularly only when we really get sick, but we really are hurting. Many of us don't get the annual checkup, which we should do. Um, but that now is the time for us to really get involved, to really get involved in our healthcare, to have discussions about, um, about not just our public health, but our personal health, our personal health and our public health. Where do you want us to go? Where do you see us going from here, doctor? Okay, so another good question. So I'm going to take us back to uh, 1968 and Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? And he speaks to the importance of the Black church, the Black press, 
black fraternities and sororities and black professional organizations. And so that involves coalition building, that involves engaging people who have relationships with people in the community. That's what we've been expanding upon. Uh, the Rainbow Push Coalition, uh, like the listeners to also look at the Black Coalition Against COVID website and the National Medical Association advisory statement on Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. Uh, so we're continuing to grow this coalition to speak the, to the times that we are in today. And uh, I thank you for convening this uh, town hall for Rainbow Push Coalition. And we just need to keep working, keep uh, on that ground game, person to person, having conversations with mm -hmm. people in the community. So I think this is all very important. You know, and I think that you're right. I mean, as we begin to close things out, I do hope, um, Dr. Deborah Ferholden, I'm hoping that um, you've been in Flint, Michigan. I mean, you have been living in the midst of um, a city that has challenged you to live in a particular way because you can't, you can't really drink the water. I mean, we're, I mean, and we have a lot of Flints, Dr. McDougall, Dr. Walks, and Dr. Knight, and all around the country. But it's one thing to hear about it and read about it. It's another thing to to live in it. Um, do you think that's made you? Um, do you think that's really? Uh, I would say, has that made? Has that heightened your activism? I mean, your I mean, you take these stellar credentials, all of you, but you've gone into the public space. In living in Flint, what kind of tied this up for us tonight? Living in Flint has changed me in ways that I can only say I'm a better human being having been in Flint. When you realize how much brilliance, how much talent, how much heart, how much just extraordinary you know, talent and ability there is here, the thought that that would be diminished or taken away from them or, you know, um, somehow suppressed because it's a, a city where big business divested or where the governor thought less of us than he did the larger cities like Grand Rapids or East Lansing. It's an honor and a privilege to take the that Hopkins PhD and these NIH grants and all of this fierceness and activism and, and roll it out for these people who are my neighbors and my friends and my colleagues and my partners in the work. If you've never been in a city like Flint, and Flint is not the only Flint, but I, I have to you know, just speak for my people. There are many Dr. Furholdens in this city. Some of them are three and four and five years old right now. They deserve the people like me to be fighting and clearing the way for people like them. Because guess what? Somebody did it for me. I am because you are. I am because of Reverend Jackson. I am because of a Dr. McDougal. So this is just to me paying it forward. And it is one of the most profound honors and privileges that I have to use 
my time, my talents, my treasures to stand with and fight for my people. You know what? And I think that really wraps it up for us because Flint is really the United States of America, which is the world. Uh, Flint helps us to look at the how we really have to function as neighbors, as one, uh, not just individually, but corporately. What responsibilities do we as individuals have, we as communities? What responsibilities do corporations have with all of us? All of these things are inter interconnected. And we've seen in Flint what happens when things don't go right. But you know what? We hope this conversation will help you to think about what can happen when things go right when things go well, what can you do? You can do a whole lot. Dr. Waltz, you're right. You can vote about it. In fact, you must vote about it. The reason we're beginning to see some change now is because that is what you did in November. And that is what you did in January. You must continue. That's the end of the beginning, not the beginning of the end. You've got to vote. You've got to take care of yourself. You've got to make an educated decision about the vaccine of a, a decision that is not based in fear, but that is based in your empowerment, your healthfulness, your knowledge, and as Dr. Deb would say, doing the work. Take the time, it's your health. You need to find out everything that you can find out. But the beautiful thing about seeing you, Dr. Knighton, and seeing you, Dr. McDougall, and seeing you, Dr. Walks, and seeing you, Dr. Deborah Folson, is that you look like some child who thinks that what you've done is unattainable, and it's not. I think of Dr. Andrew Thomas. Many of us don't know him, but we should. He headed up something called Project 75. And Project 75, he was a Howardite, and he went to Howard's Medical School because after graduating with high honors from the University of Chicago, they would not let him into their medical school. But he never forgot being shut out with all of his brilliance. And he created a, pro a Project 75, and this project got more black people into and through medical school than at any time in our history. Incredible. There's so much that we can do. There's so much that we need to do. And we do hope that you will join the Rainbow Push Coalition. Join the Rainbow Push Coalition. We need your support. We need your help. We need you to follow us on Twitter and follow us on, on social media. But we need you to support us. We're giving away pampers, we're giving away food, we're giving away meals because people are in need. We're able to contact and work with a Dr. McDougall and a Dr. Walks and a Dr. Knighton and a Dr. Deborah Verholden because of your support. And all of these persons are volunteers. <laughs> Thank goodness we could not afford them, but they know that they cannot afford not to be here because all of these persons are working and living and loving you. They're working in service of you. They're doing everything they can for you. So on behalf of Reverend Jesse Jackson and the Rainbow Push Coalition, and the Let's Talk About It with Santita Jackson and Friends page and show, the Santita Jackson show, I do hope that you'll join me on the largest progressive talk radio station in the nation, WCPT, every morning from 6 to 8, and AM 950 Radio Minneapolis, St. Paul, the home of Prince, that's right, and the time and everybody else. <laughs> I do hope that we will see you next week. And we will see you on Saturday on the Saturday Morning Forum so that you can you can see this conversation once again, everybody. God bless you. Be blessed. Be safe, healthful, and well. And remember to keep hope alive.
Okay, nobody go anywhere. Even our Facebook people, nobody go anywhere. That was great. You guys are awesome. If y'all could humor us for five more minutes. Some people have actually put some questions up. So Facebook folks, we love you. Thank you. You participated. If anybody was wondering why they won't keep putting the names up, that's going to mess up the, the broadcast for Push TV. So if y'all have specific questions, y'all have a PhD level nurse, intervention preventionist. You got two physicians on, a family physician, a psychiatrist. You got an epidemiologist on. Blast your questions. I'm going to just throw out some of the things y'all said because this ain't a part of the broadcast. That's my friend right there. Santita, as usual, your whole fan club is here. Uh, Vicki Wells, my girl. Your uh, girl. I'm going to scroll through for some questions. Uh, I want you guys, if you haven't seen them, some of the comments. Amen, Dr. Walks vote. Stanley, we love you. Yes. And we ran over so that they would be able to edit some of this in. Okay. Um, you know, so they can have some of this for Saturday morning, Saturday morning forum. We do hope that you will join the Rainbow Push of Operation Push, really, Saturday morning forum on the Impact Television Network, but they also stream live on the on the Rainbow Push and Reverend Jesse Jackson Senior page. So we hope that you will join Reverend Jackson every Sunday on Keep Up Alive with Reverend Jesse Jackson from seven to nine Central Standard Time. But let's pull up some of those questions. You got them, Doctor Deborah for holding. They, they're really fangirling you, Santita, and um, some of our comments. I wish I could look. There's bad, good evening. Well, that, this all. is the man who wants to marry her. Yeah. <laughs> She wore your purse. Uh, evidently, D-Ray thought I was some old lady. Um, <laughs> I look a lot younger uh, on camera than he thought. Oh, wait, here's my guy, um, Isaiah Oliver. My guy, we do this locally. Um, update on my second injection. I am yes. scheduled for Wednesday afternoon. Yes. I, I, I got the call. They said I could come today, but I got the Pfizer. So that's 21 days apart. And people know this is real stuff. There was a, a breakdown and the second appointments for everybody in my wave got canceled. Anyway, I got an appointment today. I opted not to go today because it's my second dose and I'm expecting that my immune system is going to be a little amped up. And I didn't want to do that. I had this, I had something right before this. I was on MSNBC this morning. And so I didn't want to risk it. I'm planning, right? And so I have to be nimble. So I'm getting it on Wednesday afternoon because I was able to clear the afternoon, give myself a chance to rest, deal with any fever or chills and natural things that happen when you get that second dose. So I am scheduled for Wednesday. All right, so some questions. Hmm, Brian Martin, let's see. Is it safe to lower your mask when no one is around you when outside? Or do we keep it on at all times, even when outside? Dr. Knighton? So I can that in the state of Ohio, we do have guidelines that if you can properly socially distance outside, you do not need your on outside. Um, it is safer to take it off ear to ear and put it up opposed to lowering the mask. Lowering the mask can increase your risk of infection in terms of droplets that you may come in contact with. So just take it all the way off. That may vary in your state. So I would suggest you check the uh, guidelines 
but it is safe when you are outside and can socially distance. There are no studies that we know of that show that you can catch COVID from outside. So, uh, and let me let me just add something uh, quickly about the mask, uh, Dr. Knighton. You everything you said is exactly right, and a lot of people don't have a mask that they can talk through without it always coming down. And every time you put it back up, you're rubbing everything that's here right back over your nose again. So get a mask that fits and get one that isn't just made of a thin piece of cloth. They, you can get masks on at uh, Costco, Amazon that have a little filter inside of them that are cloth so they look kind of nice anyway, or you can really get a, a mask that is gonna protect you. But one that keeps coming down, Stop that. And I have a small, so even with the surgical one, I end up having to tie the ends of the mask before I put it on just so that way it can have a snug fit. And I still advise that even if you're talking and the mask comes down, grab it by the ear and adjust it to pull it up. You should not grab it by the front of the mask, mm -hmm. which can be contaminated and mm -hmm. especially without hand hygiene. Thank you for that. All right, y'all want to give them just a couple minutes, and yeah, people are just you guys can check out the feed. I just because we were focused on the show, and I'll just mm -hmm. let folks know for Santita, I've converted her to Streamyard. So in the future, you might notice I have all of our names up now. We couldn't do that for the taping for the the show because it's going to be rebroadcast on Saturday. But for future broadcasts, we will have people's names up. You'll be able to see them. I see people are in the chat. Who's that speaking? Who is that? It's because this has a dual purpose. And I didn't want to use our great people here for this broadcast and for the Saturday broadcast. So we did a combined. Um, okay, Dr. Knight, you, it's, the nurse would always get all the good questions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, you want to you wanna, you take that, Deborah? Okay. So, so you detailed protocols you implemented with your family and gave a lot of hints for proper hygiene. It sounded like it was valuable info for families and full households, but it broke up. So we do need you to start with that again. Would you remind, would you mind repeating that? Yes. So a couple of things. Um, so my social media platforms, which is at Shanina Knighton, what you will find, I'm going to hold this up. These are infographics that I've passed around the city of Cleveland. We've dispersed about 100,000 of them, and they're also um, nationally being dispersed through different organizations. So they actually have in here information. So lifestyle habits, what it is that you should do to be able to stay safe for COVID. I was saying avoid people talking over your children. So you know how that old folk was. Don't talk over your children. This is that literal and figurative thing <laughs> of you don't want adults talking over children because droplets fall down on babies. And so it's information in there about adults that, you know, when they're sanitizing toys, making sure that they're not putting something that's going to be harmful on the toy to disinfect it that their kids will put in their mouths. Um, a lot of information even about navigating a doctor's visit. So I have infographics that are available. I also have a website. It is called Prevention Saves Lives and .com. And so I put information up there as well. Um, but in reference to school, because that is what Santita was talking about, I was mentioning that 
for teachers. It is important for teachers to not be hovering over a child while socially distancing, but to meet them eye to eye when they're talking to them, even when they're socially distancing. Mm -hmm. Making sure that kids understand protocols and having positive rewards. And so for educators, for parents, when your children are cleaning their hands correctly, praising them, making sure that they understand how important it is to their health as well as to the health of others. And she and, and Ms. Matarazzo said, thank you, but it's preventionsaveslives.com. I can't wait to have you on my show to talk about that. And we're going to do everything that we can to promote this packet and, and your website because people need to know and they need to see something. You know, everything's online now, Dr. Walks and Dr. McDougall. Dr. Furholden, I loved having something that I can just pull out, I'm old fashioned, that I can see because we need that. We need, and, and, when, and we cannot make the presumption that everybody is, um, has internet. We cannot make the presumption that everybody's got electricity. A lot of, Dr. Walks, right? Right. I mean, a lot of people don't have don't have running water in their homes. A lot of people tonight do not have heat. Let us be mindful of that. A lot of people in America are living in developing world conditions. They don't call it the third world anymore. They call it the developing world. But we have that here. We have that right here, all over the place, inside of our cities, outside of our cities. When my brother was in Congress, there were several places in his district that got running water because of him. Can you imagine in America in the late 20th century not having running water? So there's a lot of work that we have to do. Um, if there's anyone, I'm gonna go around and really get some closing thoughts from everybody unless you wanna bring something else up. Dr. Deborah Verhoeven. My concern is these wonderful speakers who I know are super busy, if we keep their time tight, then they'll keep coming back time and time again. Thank you. So I would be happy to pass my time over to them and I will encourage them, go check out the feed. Some people have asked some questions. We can't possibly do them all, but next week, yes. whoever we bring on, it will be more interactive and we'll hear from panelists, but also be able to answer questions if you choose to do COVID next week. I know you do different topics every week, but future COVID conversations could be more interactive. Well, you know, to be frank with you, we're gonna to continue to have these COVID conversations because they're very, very important. I have to tell you, I was really stunned when I saw this young man who, as he walked into the building, Dr. McDougall, he, he took down his mask. And then I've gone to pick up my, my mail in the lobby and people just run downstairs without their mask on. Okay, wait, they, they want this question answered. They, they, okay. A couple of questions. Mark and put it in a couple of times. Okay, Mark. Oh, Mark and Lorraine. This is the, they are also known as Ken and Barbie, the most gorgeous couple you ever want to see. Oh. In chocolate. <laughs> Mark Hay says he has a couple of questions about doubling up on masks. Is that more effective? Anyone can take that. Dr. Knighton, you look like you were moving to the. <laughs> so I was going to allow someone else to answer. So one of the things I can tell you is that the reason there was a push in a lot of healthcare settings for the surgical mask is because we know not every mask are the same or my level of, uh, 
prevention may be someone may be different from someone else. So someone may have on a gator mask, someone can have on a thin layer of cotton, someone can have on a thicker layer of cotton. So we're seeing a lot of different variations of masks and some of them are not providing adequate layers of protection. And so it is important. And I actually like Dr. Deborah Fur Holden's um, conversation about masks in terms of the mask test with the lighter. So I personally think that she should take this one because she explains it so well. <laughs> so I, I call it the match test. And I actually have a video of it. I'm going to just go ahead and break down and put it up on my uh, Instagram tonight and then I'll repost it on Facebook. Here's a basic test for you. If you can hold, light a match and hold it six inches in front of you, if you can blow that match out, chances are you can get enough air through that you might spread droplets. If you can't, that's a general quick way to tell if your mask is providing you a sufficient layer of protection. So one match, six inches away. And I'm going to tell you, we did the match test with the doubled up class uh, cloth mask. It passed. Mind you, if you aren't covering your mouth and your nose, it won't work. You will, it won't take much. So you gotta have the mask on properly. And it worked with a doubled up class uh, cloth mask. It worked with the, the, the standard blue mask. It, it's pretty good. My concern is it would be better for you to honor the protocols properly than to do the most. I tell people, this is not the time to do the most. It's also not the time to do the least. So if you're going to wear the mask and have it down here or not have your nose covered or do like Dr. Knighton said and have it down here and then pull it up, if you're going to grab it from the front, you're doing the least. It's important that you understand what the protocols are so you can honor them. So don't do the most. Don't do the least. If you can't breathe, that's not going to be um, good for you. So try the match test, everybody. It's fun. Do it with your whole family. Do it with your kids before they go back to school. Don't let them have the matches but you as a parent can put it six inches in front of them. And you can also pull it down and have their nose out and show them. See, when you have your nose uncovered or if you pull it too far down, the air gets through. And if the air can come out, the air can also come in. Hmm. One last question, Effie Rolfe. She is a legend here in the, in the field of radio here in Chicago. We love Effie Rolfe. And we appreciate your support, my dear sister friend. She's always, She's always calling in and checking in to see, to get some information. She has a pertinent one. How often should you change your mask or wash them if they are cloth? How many hours should you wear them? That's something to think about. And because I've seen people say that you should use Lysol to sanitize the mask. A lot of stuff is out here on YouTube, and things like that. So how often should you change your mask? And what, how should you care for different kinds of masks? So if it's a disposable mask, disposable mask should be disposable. So they should um, discard it after each use. If you're talking about a cloth mask, cloth mask should be laundered daily. And when talking about changing them, let's say that you've only had on your mask for three hours, but you're a mouth breather and it gets moist, I advise you to more than one mask. Just because we are in the stage of trying to prevent a virus from spreading, there are still other harmful germs such as bacteria. Our mouths carry bacteria, the environment carries bacteria. And when we're talking about a moist mask as being 
I would say a breeding bed for germs, having that moisture right there at your mouth is not good. And also when we're talking about Lysol or any kind of disinfectant for cleaning a mask, you have to remember that chemicals and things in our bodies from inhalation, um, through our skin barrier, through us consuming it, like those are different ways. And so someone that might have allergies, someone that may have sensitivity to these chemicals, they would actually be breathing in those chemicals by disinfecting their masks with those materials. So I, cur I encourage people to launder them so that way they're not triggering that kind of reaction. Mm -hmm. That's why, we, you see why we had to have her on? I did one impromptu panel with her and I'm like, I love this woman. I love her. She is such a fountain of practical information. And, and people fangirl her. Check out her Facebook page. She has so many of these infographics and this very, I mean, even I read it and I was like, wow. Just thank you. Thank you all. So Santita, you close us out. Well, you know what? God bless you all. This has been wonderful. Let me thank each of you. Yes. I'm sorry. I just would be remiss if I say this because it's along the lines of infection prevention. Of course. So many of us don't know this, but hand hygiene for patients. So patient hand hygiene is not mandatory anywhere. It is not mandatory for hospitals to teach patients how to clean their hands and the importance of cleaning their hands while they are in healthcare facilities. In the state of Ohio, I have proposed the first bill which has been introduced is House Bill 628, which is requiring long-term care facilities and hospitals to provide patients with hand hygiene education. It is important because while we are emphasizing in so many different circles for people to clean their hands, if any of us go inside of a hospital facility right now, it is not guaranteed that someone will provide us with resources mm -hmm. to clean our hands or education in ways for us to be able to prevent infections. It is important because as we talk about not spreading COVID, not spreading other kinds of healthcare-associated infections, these are things that we have to think about. And so we want to make sure that if we or our loved ones go inside of a healthcare facility, that they are aware that they should be cleaning their hands as well as asking for materials because it is not mandatory that a healthcare facility is going to make sure that you have them. And we know that patient germs have, uh, patients' hands have pathogens on them. Hmm. Is it better to use a liquid if you're in public? I'm, well, they don't really have uh, bars of soap anymore, but I mean, is that is that even safe for you to use at home, a bar of soap to clean your hands? Hand or is it better to use yeah, hand washing is the number one most preferred thing that you can do to be able to remove germs and bacteria. If you do not have the option to be able to wash your hands, then that is where the hand sanitizers come in. Should you use a bar of soap? Is that better? Or is it better to have liquid soap? So according to E.B. Price, a famous researcher from 1938, any kind of friction with water and some sort of material like some sort of soap to create lather is going to remove germs. So, okay. Yeah, so if it's bar, if it's the kind that they have, it's liquid, you're good as long as it's 20 to 25 seconds and you're getting in the creases. Okay. I think that is it because you know what, Dr. McDougall, Dr. Walks, Dr. Knighton, 
Dr. Folden, Dr. Fur Holden and I want you to come back. We want you to come back. We want to thank you. We're so honored. We're so honored by you, Dr. Knighton, by your work. And we cannot wait to bring you before more and more people because more and more people should know the brilliant work that you are doing. And we want to thank you. We want to thank nurses because we don't get a chance to thank them as we should. And maybe next time we'll get some paraprofessionals, uh, like my grandmother, Gertrude, who worked in the VA hospital serving food for more than 30 years, and she was proud of that job. Um, but a lot of people work in our healthcare system, and they are the unsung heroes, and they deserve so much more than what we are giving them. Dr. Walks, want to thank you for taking your brilliance into the realm of public health <laughs> to a community that, um, that often gets overlooked. You know, D.C. has Georgetown, D.C. has Anacostia before it got gentrified. <laughs> and so I want to thank you for taking uh, for taking this public health message, for taking up um, the banner, really, and making a system that everyone in Washington really feels that they have access to. And I want to thank you for that because it means a lot. Uh, Dr. McDougall, can't say enough about you and all of these courageous black physicians um, who you represent. And thank you for what you do on the undergraduate level. Thank you for what you do to help get these young uh, would-be physicians through medical school. Thank you for helping them to find a place in this wonderful profession where you do no harm. Thank you so much for all that you do. You've got yet another job. I don't know how you do it, but we want to thank you and the Ohio State University. Love it, love it, love it. God bless you. And Dr. Deborah Verholden can't say enough about you for setting all this up tonight and um, and for making this go. Yes, you do have another job. We thank you, one of the world's foremost epidemiologists. Um, thank you for the work that you're doing in Michigan State. And thank all of you for all of the work that you're doing beyond your jobs. Thank you for for having missions and being obedient to them. Thank you for serving people. We thank you for your service, Dr. McDougall, Dr. Walks, Dr. Knighton, and Dr. Ferholden. May God bless you, everybody. And again, keep hope alive. See you in the morning.